Hello and welcome back to season two, episode four of the Scared to Death podcast, presented by the Terror Management Lab at James Madison University. My name is Eliza Tobias, and I am a senior psychology major at James Madison University. Today we are here with Christina Yoka, a 2020 JMU alumni and recent graduate from John Jay in New York City. Christina, how are you doing this morning? I am good. So we can get started with just some questions about your recent work and what you've been doing lately. So Yeah, so right. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> You're all good. I was going to say, uh, right now, I work for Anami Chicago. Um, I work in the mental health courts as a clinician and just living up in Chicago, enjoying the weather this week. So, <laughs> Some nice spring weather recently. Mm -hmm. So starting off, you went to James Madison University. You were part of the Terror Management Lab. How did you find out about the Terror Management Lab at James Madison? So I actually transferred to JMU my sophomore year of college. Um, when I got there, I had a very clear image of what I wanted to do with my future. So I knew I was going to grad school. Um, and so I knew I needed a research experience. So I started looking on all the websites and the different research labs in the psychology department and in the criminal justice department since that was my minor. Um, and I stumbled upon the terror management lab and kind of looked into what they were doing. Um, and so at the beginning, it was really just trying to get the experience. But then as I joined terror management and really got into the research that we were doing, I kind of just fell in love with research as a whole. And so that kind of kickstarted my whole love of doing research myself and why I did a thesis in my master's program. That's very similar to me, actually. I transferred also my sophomore year and found the lab through just wanting to have lab experience. So, um, something that I... tends to be how it works. <laughs> Something I hear from other lab members who have maybe been a part of previous labs is that the terror management lab has a long stay. So people that join the lab tend to stay until they graduate. Was that an experience for you? Oh yeah, so I joined my sophomore year and I mean, I was seeing you guys a few months ago. I, I mean, I can't get enough of the terror management lab. I love it. Um, I uh, did projects all through graduation and then even after graduation, I helped on a couple of things and then um, anytime Lindsay gives me a, a call, I'm always there. I'm always wanting to pop in when I can. So. so this love of the lab, what sticks out as your favorite memory? I've got two. And one is very lab specific and one is very much just the energy of the people who were in the lab at the time. And <clears throat> also meeting you guys, I feel like would probably translate to you guys as well. Um, I would say one was one year we did pride all together. Um, being <clears throat> a member of the LGBTQ community, it was such an amazing experience for me to have my friends through this lab all with me. And I think it was my second pride ever. So super fun to do that with everybody in Harrisonburg. And then um, my second favorite and probably the one that sticks out the most just because it's become very important to me is there was one night we were doing really late interviews um, for a study we were doing at the time. And that interview and that night of sitting around a table and like watching it back and talking through like the interview process was a really big like aha moment for me of wanting to become a clinician and wanting to do the work that I do now. Um, and so that was a, a moment where I really found my passion and what I wanted to do. And so I thank the lab for that. Like, every day of my life and my career now. 
that kind of ties into the next question that I have of the initial reasoning as to why you're interested in forensic psychology or the criminal justice minor that you had while at JMU? Yeah, so when I was growing up, I knew I always wanted to do something involving the criminal justice system. I grew up in a criminal justice family. And so for me, that was something that always kind of stuck out. Um, I just didn't know to what capacity I wanted to do that. And growing up, I didn't know what forensic psychology was. So I knew that I had this interest in criminal justice. And then when I was in high school, I took a psychology class. And so then I had this really big interest in psychology. And so going into college, I was like, you know what? I'll just do a major in one and minor in the other and figure it out. So that's what I did. I came to JMU, majored in psychology, minored in criminal justice. And then as I took classes, I found out there was a, a class called forensic psychology. And so I researched what that meant. <laughs> it was like, okay, what is this thing? Like, what's, what is that? I've never heard of it before. Um, and I found out it was that perfect intersectionality of the two things that I love the most. And so I took the class and then found, figured out very quickly that that's what I wanted to do my master's in. Um, and so from there, I kind of just started having my own like mind running wild of like, okay, what can happen in this field and what ways can it be going in just such a new field in comparison to psychology as a whole. And even psychology is relatively new in context. Um, but it was just cool to see like this weird idea that I didn't know exists become such a huge part of my future. Um, and so then I went to John Jay for uh, my forensic psychology master's. What was appealing about John Jay? I know there's not a huge amount of forensic psychology programs as I have recently, I'd searched and, and was applying this past year. So what brought you into John Jay? The initial appeal was the location. It's middle Manhattan. I have moved around a lot growing up, but I had never lived <clears throat> in the middle of a big city. And so that was the initial appeal. Um, so I was like, oh, that's interesting. And so, but as I started looking further into the school and into <clears throat> all the professors there, I really fell in love with the staff and just the people I was going to be able to work with. Um, I found people I wanted to do just research with and work alongside just to expand on their own projects. Then I also found people that I was interested in talking about my own master's thesis and um, doing research based off of their previous research and being able to expand upon that. And so I really found um, kind of my niche within their community there. Do you mind explaining a little bit about what your thesis was? Yeah, so, <clears throat> sorry, I cannot clear my throat this morning. Um, I did my thesis on the stigmatization of mental health in the criminal justice system, specifically of offenders. Um, and so I talked to, well, not really talked to because no COVID, so I did a survey. I wish I could have done interviews, but that's beside the point. Um, I conducted surveys to be able to see uh, what the general public's perspective of the uh, offenders in our community, and especially ones suffering with mental illness was. And so wanted to see how stigmatized their views were and what their perceptions were so that we can then take that research and do more research and figure out the active steps we need to take to destigmatize and to help the community better understand these individuals because they kind of put a target on their back as soon as they're as soon as their justice involved, which is unfair, at least in my opinion. Yeah. 
Uh, can I ask what really drove this research? Since, I mean, there's thousands <coughs> of topics that you go into for a thesis. Like, what made you narrow down on this topic? So, it's my topic started off really wide. I really didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, when I went into looking for a thesis advisor, <coughs> I was trying to do research on mental health systems that are being implemented in the prisons for women specifically. That was my goal. Um, then I realized that that project is way too big to do in two years. And so that's something I was saying, you know, maybe I'll pick that up at a PhD later on. But um, what I did was I was talking with people who I was trying to work with as advisors. Um, and I talked to uh, Dr. Philip Janos, who ended up being my advisor, and he did a lot of stigma work. And so he kind of helped me whittle it down. And he goes, you know, it would be a really good um, kind of good step forward for you to build upon to be able to see, you know, where does it even begin? Where does the stigma come from? And so we looked into things um, just for like the literature review of like, okay, what about TV shows? Do TV shows affect people's perspective? Do um, where they're where they grew up if they have exposure to it and so we asked questions like that within the survey to kind of see okay do they have the stigma and if they do compare it across and see do they have the stigma and also have like less or more exposure to this community than other people do or do they have no exposure and just based off of tv shows um and so that's kind of what we wanted to bounce around the possible idea of to then be able to kind of jumpstart into that future research um, so it was really just kind of like a kickstart point, being able to do future research, which is what I'm really trying to do um, down the road is just get as much information as we can for everybody to expand on. Yeah, that's very in-depth and impactful research. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So other than your thesis at John Jay, you completed research on general generational memory of 9-11. Can you tell us a little bit more about that research and how TMT relates to that? Yeah, so I worked with a lab um, called the Stone Lab. It was Dr. Stone. Um, he basically wanted to look into whether or not the trauma of 9-11 from people's parents was then translated into their kids. So people either are like our age, um, and then even at the time when we were collecting data, there were kids who had weren't alive they weren't around yet at the time that 9-11 happened. And so they basically were just going fully off of their parents' memory because obviously they didn't have any. Um, and so we interviewed both the parents and the kids separately to be able to get their own accounts. And so what we did was talk to the parents, said, okay, what was your experience? Tell us where you were. Tell us what you were doing. How did you feel during it? How did you feel after it? How do you feel now? Um, and then ask them questions like, you know, what's the likelihood, in your opinion, that something like that'll happen again um, in the next month, in the next year, in the next 10 years? And we kind of got in depth like that. And then we did the same thing with their kids. But with the kids, what we did was, and they were all students, they're all a very team, just to let everybody know. But um, they, we asked them, what is their understanding, not their memory? Because a lot of them didn't have any of it. And so we're like, okay, so based off what your parents have told you, what do you know? And how do you feel about it? How, how did you feel about it when you heard about it? Do you have fears about it now? Um, do you have a fear of it happening next month, in the next year, in the next 10? What's the likelihood of that? 
Um, so it was very interesting to do that interview process and really kind of get all that information and start wading through it and see kind of the different perspectives people held. They're just the full lack of knowledge. I mean, some people just didn't even know. Um, but for the people who did, there was that idea that popped in my head when we were cleaning the data of, you know, this would be really interesting terror management kind of work here. If you took, took this idea and applied TMT, it'd be super interesting to see because, I mean, people have these fears about it happening really soon again. Um, and they have this fear of death due to that idea. And so I think it'd be interesting to look at it through a TMT lens at that point. Yeah. I understand why you mean John Jay's great location for forensic psychology now, that research yeah. you're in. Um, was this some of your favorite research that you've done with other professors at John Jay, or is there something else that stuck out to you? I think that was probably one of my favorite ones. Um, I did really like, I did uh, research with my advisor. He did um, a project where we had a mental health, like almost like a pop-up inside of a museum um and what we wanted to see was having that kind of exposure in a very common place would help with destigmatization and providing knowledge and so we had this little booth up basically where people was interactive and um <clears throat> we have a paper about it out now so if you want to read it you can um but it's super interesting to see that you know little things like that like putting a little pop-up inside of a museum really helped people get a grasp and understand not only them their, themselves and their own mental health but then also people that care about that i had people writing in at the end of the pop-up and saying hey like i didn't understand this about my loved one and their mental health but like you guys maybe help me understand why things are the way they are and why they might react certain ways and um I think it was really informative and people don't get the, the space to be able to learn stuff like that all the time. Yeah, it's really interesting, the location in the museum. I never would have thought about mm -hmm. that, but especially in New York where tourism and there's tons of museums, seems like a perfect spot. Tons of exposure. It was really cool. Yeah. So I know we talked about this briefly earlier, but this past February, some current TMT lab members, including myself, helped in presenting research you helped um, complete with the nonverbal behaviors in specific college age populations and how that may serve as a predictor of suicide ideation. Um, where did this interest for this research come from? And more so, where would you like to see this research go and come out of this research in the future? So for me, growing up, sadly, something that we see and I saw a lot personally was people who struggled with suicidal ideation and self-harm. Um, a lot of friends of mine growing up struggled with it, which was tough to see and tough to, you know, be a supporting factor in that. Mm -hmm. um, just trying to help them get through it, especially when you don't understand it. Um, <laughs> and so when I got to college and I was trying to figure out the research and Lindsay started talking about, you know, what we we're going to be doing as a lab, I got really interested in it because for me, it was an interesting way to kind of help create a space and put information out there about a topic that's very taboo people mm -hmm. don't want to talk about it and i think it's very important to talk about the things that people don't want to talk about sometimes because i mean that's the only way we get the information out there that's the only way we make people feel like they're not alone and we provide a space for that destigmatization to happen um and i think with the nonverbal piece specifically 
people's behaviors say a lot and it's a lot more than you might think. And I, I see that a lot in my job today. Um, I take a lot of people's behaviors as saying a lot more than what their words do. And I think this is the same within suicide research as well. People can say they're fine, but you don't, if you were watching their body language, you can see that something's not. Um, and so that to me was super interesting to kind of be part of. And um, I'd love to see it just continue, kind of just be like a snowball and just build upon it and keep it going and um, do further research on nonverbal behavior and all realms. I would love to see continuing in TMT, but then just everywhere else. Um, I think understanding something that's so difficult as nonverbal behaviors is so key to understand people as a whole that you can't just ignore it because it's hard. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it was really great reading the paper and presenting and getting able to share that information. So thank you for being a part of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so currently you work at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which provides advocacy, education, support, and public awareness so that all individuals and families affected by mental illness can build better lives. So can you tell us a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like in this position? Yeah, so I, like I said before, I work as a clinician in the mental health court. And so um, what I do is, it will little background, mental health court, if you don't know what it is, the mental health court is a diversion program um, where people who are in the justice system are diverted out of jail and into this program to be able to get mental health assistance and um, also just life assistance to be able to help with the the reduction of recidivism and get them back into the community and properly in treatment and getting the help that they need that they might have never seen before. Um, and for our program specifically, we will, it's actually a, um, expungement program. So at the end of their program, if they finish it to completion, the felony on their record gets expunged. And so that's huge, especially for people who are, might be in our program as their first offense. I mean, that means they're good to go and they don't have, that won't come up again. And which is fantastic for them. Um, and other people, they might have an extensive record and, it's not really about the getting expungement. It's more about just getting the help for the first time. And so what I do is I work with these people from start to finish. Um, they get connected to me. I complete an assessment where I determine, you know, do they have an accurate diagnosis to be able to be in this program? Um, what's their background like? What's their family history? What's their life history? I build a really strong relationship with these people to be able to help them the best that I can. I become basically a built-in support system for them. Um, I build them a treatment plan. I get them connected to services. They need medication to make sure they take it, um, all that kind of stuff. So a lot of case management kind of process, but then also um, doing the clinical assessments and stuff is very, very key and important in that process to even get it started. And so that's just relatively what I do. There's a lot of little nuances that come into it. there's crises every day. Sometimes we have people who have struggle with substance abuse and it's, that's a whole new thing to tackle because I wasn't really well versed in substance until I got into this job and I had to learn on the fly and really do some studying. Didn't think I'd be studying after school, but I did. <laughs> um, but yeah, so do that. I go to court pretty regularly. Um, I go in there and I advocate for them and I make sure that, you know, if they slipped up here and there, that they're still getting the best opportunity that they can. So keeping them out of the jail and making sure, you know, okay, they slipped up here. They started using again. 
let's get them treatment. And let's not just put them back in the jail because technically they violated probation. Let's make sure that they're actually getting the help that they need and not just kicking them back into a system that we're trying to keep them out of. So um, it's a lot of juggling, but it's fun. <laughs> it seems like it. And I can't imagine if you tell us a little about what it was like coming into this role kind of during the pandemic and also like kind of on the outside of it. How did that affect just everything going on in the court system and the patients you were seeing? Yeah, so when I first started, we were fully virtual, um, aside from having to go to court. So my courtroom was actually the first one to go fully back in person. So it was back in person. The plastic guards were up, masks were on, the whole thing. Um, so I started off virtually, but I had to immediately move up here to start getting work, started working because I was going into court once every couple of weeks. <clears throat> and so it was really weird. You know, I was meeting these people on the phone. I was calling them and saying, hey, I'm going to talk to you all the time and you're never going to see my face and you just have to be okay with that. And so having to build rapport with people over the phone is hard, man. Mm -hmm. Like it is difficult, but you know, I did it. And once we started easing back up a little bit and the, um, you know, going in person more and I was able to come into my office more and start asking my participants to come here and meet with me here and we can talk through things and, I had people come in and be like, oh my gosh, that's what you look like. And I was like, you too? I'm like, I didn't, I didn't imagine that at all. And I think in-person allows for a stronger connection. I think in-person everything, especially in this field, you know, having the interaction is so important. Um, and I think people do so much better when they can physically see someone in front of them being excited about their progress. And mm -hmm. I'm a very outwardly excited person. Like I'm like jumping around in the courtroom, like, yeah, like you're doing great. Um, but over the phone, that doesn't really translate as well. So <laughs> it was definitely difficult, but we got through it and it was fun. Um, definitely happy to be back basically fully in person all the time, which is fun. Yeah, it must feel a little bit easier. And they started off in like the hardest possible situation and then it's progressively yeah. getting better. <laughs> <laughs> so looking forward, what do the next five years or so look like for you? You know, I would love to get my <laughs> PhD. I would love to get my PhD in clinical psychology. Will it happen in the next five years? I would love that. If it doesn't, that's okay. Um, I am a research kid. I love it. I want to keep doing it. I want to keep expanding that knowledge. I think knowledge is power, you know, like get people to know what's going on in the world. Um, at least make it accessible. And I think that's so, so important, especially I think as I've been in my role for as long as I have, and as I continue to be in this place, I see it being so much more important as time goes on to just really advocate for these people in research as well like these people are people and i think we often lose sight of that as soon as they hit the criminal justice system we forget that about them and it breaks my heart but it's very encouraging to make those steps forward to make sure that we have a space for them and we you know provide the knowledge that we can and we provide the information to the public that we can to say hey like these they deserve everything. They deserve the help. They deserve what they need. Um, and so that's why I kind of want to go back to school eventually and kind of get, get that, get that going. We'll see. 
But right now, I'm happy where I am. I like what I do. And if I'm doing this in five years, I'll be happy. So That's good to hear as someone who is going into a forensic psychology master's program. <laughs> That's nice to hear. That's <laughs> reassuring. I have more of a like personal interested question, I guess you'd say, especially since you're so interested in research. I don't know if this is something that's been talked about at all. But how do you feel about the recent surge in true crime documentaries and series? And do you think they're doing more harm or good to the general population? So, personally, I love them. Me too, I me too. <laughs> find them so fascinating. And, you know, like, it's so cool to just, the ones that are just documentary, so it's really just talking about, you know, the facts of it, super interesting to me. And then the series are also super interesting just because you kind of get that, like, you're watching it happen and it's wild. Mm -hmm. um, and you're kind of getting more information that you didn't really know. Like, you have these famous, famous, quote unquote, people like Dahmer and Top, like, uh, Bundy and everything like that. And just trying to piece that together without all the information was like, wow, this is insane. But then seeing it all play out in front of you is like, whoa, this is really crazy. Mm -hmm. Um but I think on a serious note, I think there is a possibility it could cause issues. Um, I mean, like I was saying before, like when I was doing my own research for th my thesis, we looked into talking about, you know, do these TV shows create that stigma or, or a, like add to it? Um, and that's something that I've always thought about as possibly being a concern. Um, just because, you know, if people don't have the exposure to the criminal justice system or to people who struggle with um, staying out of it once they're in it, um, they don't understand the nuances that kind of get involved with the prison system and with, the, with people who are offenders. And um, it kind of creates this negative idea of, you know, well, you chose this life you're doing this, you are, you actively are making these decisions all the time. You, you could make a different one when it's not that easy. And so I think shows like this could possibly make that worse. Um, of like, you know, they knew what they were doing and they did it anyway. Um, I think, you know, for certain shows, obviously it's very, <laughs> it's very just informative. And I think that's really great too, of just being able to provide information. But I think some other shows, they might cause a little bit more harm in just creating a narrative that might not be totally true. I agree. I definitely agree. I think one of my favorite ones that I've watched recently was on the creation of the Amber Alert system. Because I always knew there was a story Ooh. behind it. I just didn't really know what that was. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. it was just to see, they did a flash forward of how many children's lives it saved since it was created. And the mother of the girl who was abducted was like, she pushed so hard for legislation to get that created. And I'm so glad that's around. And I definitely, now that I know the story, definitely take it a lot more seriously than I did originally. I haven't seen that one. So I'll have to go watch it. I definitely recommend. I will be doing that. <laughs> so now we're at the part of the podcast where we have some rapid fire questions. <clears throat> um, so we're just going to start with them. So, more silly questions. Uh, what's your favorite month of the year? September. Can I ask why? Because it's like at the very end of the summer, it's still really warm, but it's not 
ridiculous, at least where I am. Um, and it's not getting too cold yet where you're having to wear hoodies and stuff all the time. So it's like a perfect weather. It's not getting too bad yet. We're good. It's fair. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. what was your first job that you had? I was a waitress in a pizza shop for like two months. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people start off as waitresses and servers. Yep, I was a waitress for a second and I realized I was not good at it. My memory when it comes to memorizing people's orders and stuff and all the adjustments that they made, I was overwhelmed. So I said, you know what, now, and I became a hostess instead and I was much happier that way. <laughs> What was your favorite childhood TV show? SpongeBob. Mm, a classic. <laughs> mm-hmm. What is your favorite type of muffin? Okay, this one's really specific, and I hope you know what this is. So, Starbucks. Okay. Every season, every like fall season, they have a pumpkin muffin that's filled with cream cheese. Ooh. So good. It is so good. It's like addicting to the point where I will, during that time of year, I'll go almost every day and try and get one. It is so good. (laughs) (laughs) Something to look out for. I'm more of a Dunkin' Mm -hmm. Muffin kind of girl because they're about two times bigger and cost a little bit less, but. (laughs) There's muffins at Dunkin'? Yeah. Oh, I I need to go try this now then. Okay. I wouldn't hold myself to the quality of the muffin, but they are a lot bigger (laughs) and cheaper. (laughs) Good to know. Good to know. Okay, then last question. What is a story from your childhood that accurately describes you now? Oh, man. Okay. So, when I was little, I would say about like four or five, I apparently very often would just run off and disappear (laughs) in public places. And Apparently, one time we were in the mall with my whole family. I just did my typical disappearing act, and I just wandered off somewhere, and my parents tried finding me. And when they finally found me, I'm sitting on a bench next to this much older man, just talking to him. And when they walk up to grab my hand and, like, drag me away, I turned to them, and I said, oh, my gosh, Mom, this is my new friend. Can he come home for dinner with us? And she goes... Christina, this is a grown man. No, I'm glad you made a friend, but no. And I am still like that today. I love people. I will talk to anybody. I mean, you you smile at me. I'll say, oh my gosh, hi, we're new friends. Like, I, I just like talking to people. And I think my, it makes my family nervous to this day. I am a full adult and I still make my parents nervous. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I would say that accurately describes you then. well thank you so much for being on the podcast and talking with us and just sharing some more information about your research yeah absolutely anytime 